Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. FedEx Forum, Growl Towels, Super Grizz, each one a Memphis Grizzlies tradition. This is the Grizzlies Podcast. What's up, everybody? We are back for another week of the Grizzlies Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Barnes, typically your Memphis football beat writer, and I'm joined by DeMichael Cole, your Grizzlies beat writer. Uh, interesting week for the Grizzlies since last we spoke. We were talking and being excited about Jaron Jackson coming back, but plot had, twist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had no idea that as soon as we uh, finished recording, Desmond Bain would be um, out for an extended period of time. Michael, how long is Desmond Bain out for? Yeah, he was reevaluated in two to three weeks. Was the the Grizzlies, you know, um, way of putting it? But um, <laughs> I've talked to a couple people who said, yeah, that that's reevaluated is kind of you know a lighter term, but he should be back probably in two to three weeks. It's a toe injury, right? It's a right uh right big toe sprain. So basically, a lot of people don't you don't see that injury in the NBA a lot. But some, from people I've talked to, it's basically a turf toe injury yeah. when in football. And yeah. that's, you know, the simplest way to foot it. For all the football people out there, you see turf toe injuries all the time. And that's basically what Desmond Bain is dealing with. Definitely. So, yeah, wild injury. Obviously, people talk about Desmond Bain looking like a football player. Well, he's got a football-like injury, <laughs> yeah, I guess. All right. Um, and then, of course, obviously the big news, uh, John Morant uh Grade one ankle sprain, so he'll be reevaluated week to week. He's week to week, he'll be reevaluated um, week to week. So, um, Grizzlies all of a sudden go from getting Jaron Jackson back to now being without their starting backcourt. So, DeMichael, let's get right into it. Obviously, you saw these last couple games without uh, those two guys. Um, how do you think the team is going to be able to handle these next few games without Ja and Bane? You know, it's a challenging stretch, and I think, you know. I went back and, and, and watched a little bit of those fourth quarters against Colton State those last two games because that's what it reminded me of, uh, that, that game against, you know, the last game that they lost against the Nets, right, when they were tit for tack. Dylan Brooks is leading away. He's super aggressive, and they're down two points going into the fourth quarter. And then the fourth quarter comes, and granted, it was a lot of defensive issues too. The Nets made a lot of three-pointers, tied their season high with 16 three-pointers made. But the Grizzlies' offense just couldn't keep up. And the simple answer is, well, you know, they don't have John Morant, one of the best fourth-quarter scorers from last season. Desmond Bain, one of the best fourth-quarter scorers from this season. The deeper picture here is the fact that without those two guys, when you talk about the defense that teams play in the fourth quarter, for one, it's the fourth quarter. The intensity is going to ramp up. Everyone's giving their all. You know, this is it. Just go all out, like ex- extend, you know, your energy, you know, to zero, zero, zero on the clock. Now, with that being said, a lot of teams, including the Grizzlies, we see the Grizzlies do a lot as well. Defensively, they start to switch everything late in the game. Well, what does the switch do? The good is you kind of take teams out of their offense when they're running all these screens and trying to get players open. All you're doing is pointing, hey, this guy pick him up, this guy pick him up. Whereas the downside of that is when you're switching a lot, 
mismatches are created. Sometimes you're switching and you have a 6'2 point guard guarding a 7-foot center. And, you know, that's the downside. The plus is you take teams out of their offense, which indeed forces them to play isolation basketball. For the Grizzlies, that's the worst thing for them right now because we've talked about it a lot. And one of the problems when you don't have John Morant and Desmond Bain is the lack of shot creators, the lack of guys who can create shots for themselves in isolation situations. If you go back to the playoffs last season against Golden State, the last two losses in Game 4 and in Game 6, in in both of those losses, the offense kind of, you know, struggled late in the games. Game 4, it was the last two, three minutes where they couldn't, you know, get a field goal. In Game 6, they were down, I think, one or two points to Golden State going into that fourth quarter, and Golden State pulled away in the fourth quarter. Both of those games, not only was John Morant, you know, not there, but Golden State switched everything, took them out of their offense, and that was all she wrote. And more proof of that is if you watch the Grizzlies, that game against the Nets, uh, one thing that stood out to me is how the ball was moving. I mean, Evan, they were, they were crisp. It looked like the offense last season when Tyus Jones started, when they went 19-4, and four, the ball movement was crisp. Uh, 18 assists in the first half. So they were on pace for, what, 36 assists in the game, and usually – 30 assists is kind of like a great number in the NBA. If you reach mm-hmm. 30 assists, you had a heck of a night passing the basketball. Well, the Grizzlies had 18 in the first half against the Nets, and they finished that game with under 30 assists. And that's because when you get late into those fourth-quarter stretches, team are gonna, teams are going to force you to play isolation basketball. And right now, without John Morant, without Desmond Bain, that's the biggest concern, I think, from watching from afar is the fact that the Grizzlies need someone, and Dylan Brooks is capable, but it's hit or miss, right? So you just need someone to be able to say, hey, it's the fourth quarter. I'm going to put the team on my back. I'm not going to just create shots for myself. I'm going to create shots for my teammates and make us, you know, and carry us through this last stretch. Yeah, and just to bring up what you just said about the assists. So the Grizzlies had 18 in that first half. They finished with 28, so they had 10 assists yeah. in the second half. That's not going to be a good number in a game like this. Um, the other thing, you mentioned Dylan Brooks. Obviously, we're going to see a lot more Dylan Brooks action. We know what Dylan Brooks likes to do in these moments. He's going to put up more shots because he knows, hey, i got to put the team on my back. I'm going down fighting. Dylan Brooks, 31 points, but took 30 shots. So basically, the Dylan Brooks experience for everyone in a nutshell. And four steals, it should be noted. Yeah. But I think, obviously, you're going to see a lot more of, of of Dylan Brooks having to put that scoring load on him, which he's fully ready to do. But clearly, in this game against the Nets, they didn't have Jaron Jackson. Jaron's obviously going to be another big factor scoring the ball. Um, but my concern with, with no John Bain is everything you said I think is great. The one thing I'm worried about is, and I noticed this when they didn't have John, I believe, against Utah, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's right. Um, what teams can do is teams have figured out, hey – if, if Ja is out, we know the Grizzlies can play well without him. So what we're going to do is account for everybody. But I think with Bain out, with, with Bain out, what you don't have is you don't have that consistent three-level score alongside Ja, who's proven enough to say, all right, if you need 20, I can get you 20. And I think you'll agree with me on this. When Bain gets 20, it looks like an easier 20 than Dylan Brooks getting 20, I would say. Oh, for sure. Like, Dylan more Brooks, efficient, yeah. Right. D- B- uh, Bain is way more efficient. Dylan Brooks can get that 20, but he's going to have to work a little bit more to get it. Bain a much easier 20 because of that three-point shooting. And I think that's what's going to be missed the most is that you don't have the perimeter shooting to balance that out. And the question is going to be who is going to be that 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 scorer? Because you're not going to maybe replace Bain's shooting, but who's going to be that scorer to try to take that load besides uh, Brooks and Jaron? Because you need somebody else to kind of carry that out because Ja will, will be back soon. 
But what's more important is who's going to be that consistent number two when teams are focusing on Ja Morant and saying, all right, make somebody else beat us. Like, Ja, get your points. Somebody that's, else is going to have to beat that's, us. That's a great point. That, that's actually something, you know, I, I wrote a story last week, and this was before Ja Morant was out. This is right. when Desmond Bain was out. I wrote that story that the Memphis Grizzlies are, you know, they're searching for more secondary offense without Desmond Bain. If you haven't read that yet, you go check it out at thecommercialappeal.com. But the thing about it is – we saw even in those couple games where Ja played without Dez is teams were just saying, Hey, look, Ja, go get your thirty six. Yep. Go go score your, you know, your thirty eight points. If we contain everything around that and, you know, we take them, like you said, the three pointers and, and take all the you know, those things away, uh, they're gonna struggle. And you know, I've said, look, we've seen the Grizzlies this season. We got off to a pretty good start without Jaron Jackson Jr. We've seen last season in, in games that Tyus Jones started in place of John Morant. The Grizzlies went 19-4. and four. And, you know, we've seen the Grizzlies last season go on one of their longest, I mean, I think it was the longest win streak in franchise history with Dylan Brooks basically being out right. for most of it. Right. So uh, they've won without some of the best key pieces on this team. But what we haven't seen is the Grizzlies win for an extended period of time without Desmond Bank. And, and I was going to say, the other thing to that, too, is teams now have scouted against him for that now. So yeah. I don't think you're going to see a repeat of that. Like, I think team, you know, we all marveled how the Grizzlies destroy teams without Ja, without Dylan Brooks. I think teams now have scouted them well enough to be like, okay, this is how we're going to defend it, get against it so they won't be caught off guard. So I think my concern is, will the Grizzlies adjust to that? Because, again, it's going to be key for them to say, hey, teams know that – they can raise their game up without Ja. But how is that going to happen now when you don't have Desmond Bain, who was a big reason, I think, mm-hmm. last year in those big games where they, they won without um, Ja's that Desmond Bain played really, really well. So to me, the key is going to be who is going to be that person that steps up without Desmond Bain and can they replace him? I'm not sure if they can, but we'll see how they can do it. And it's it's tough, Evan, because here's here's the thing. I think when you when you talk about what's the answer, like for the Grizzlies to actually do that, to me, it's something that, that would force them to go against their identity, which is, which is you know, uh, when you have those mismatches. Because I think the answer that you're talking about, teams have scouted for that. Clearly in the fourth quarter, they do it more. And that's when teams start to switch everything a little bit more. Right. And once right. you switch things and you take the Grizzlies out of that, you know, because that's how they win without – John Morant and without, you know, Dylan Brooks and those guys, when those guys were out, they were winning with just persistent, you know, ball movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tyus Jones, head of the snake with those units and whatnot. But when you take the Grizzlies out of that offense, uh, one thing that the Grizzlies can do and what the better teams tend to do in the NBA is attack those mismatches. For example, if you have a team willingly switching a point guard on to Steven Adams – just go to them. And you, if you watch the game against the Nets, again, this is kind of against the Grizzlies' identity. How do I know this? Because I remember in the summer I was talking to David McClure, assistant coach with the Grizzlies, and we saw Kenneth Lofton Jr. And I'm going to get back to the original point here. But we saw <laughs> Kenneth Lofton Jr. was dominant, right? Right. Scoring inside consistently. And I was in my mind, it was like this is something the Grizzlies don't have, a guy who can just get on the block, who can, you know, pivot left, pivot right, spin move, post moves, you know, all these face-up game, back-to-the-basket game. The Grizzlies don't have this. And I was talking to David McClure about that, and he was basically saying, well, yeah, you know, that's cool, but 
the Grizzlies, as much as they're trying to mix Kenneth Lofton game into their offense, they want him to adjust to the way they play. That Makes back sense. to the basket and throwing it to a guy and saying, everybody move out of the way, that's not the Grizzlies' offense. They play with space. They play fast with pace, and that slows the game down. That's not usually how they play. So that goes back to my original point where I say they have to go against their identity in a way because when teams switch on you like that and you have Steven Adams in the game, oh, Get a point guard on him, get a six-five shooting guard on him, and just throw the ball and say, everybody move. But that's not their usual identity. And another case in point of that is in the first half against the Nets, an undersized Nets team without Nick Claxton, their shot blocker, their athletic big man, uh, Steven Adams, 12.7 rebounds. He was scoring at will. That was from, in the first half, right? In the first half. Finished the game with 15 points and 10 rebounds. 12 points and 7 rebounds in the first half alone. So I think the big reason for that is because the Grizzlies didn't want, you know, I mean, it's not their identity to just keep saying, hey, here, here, here. But you got to kind of go against those things when teams are making the adjustment. I think you were talking about the adjustment that they have to make. That's one of them to me. And I think the, and that's another thing I have about Steven Adams is that I've noticed if he has a great first half, it sometimes doesn't carry over. Like, I think the, the game he had where he had all those rebounds and he still finished with, I believe, under – I believe he had under 21 or 20. I was like, yep, doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me. And, again, that speaks to more Steven Adams in that way. But, yeah, they're going to have to figure out how to adjust. And one of my concerns with Taylor Jenkins is Taylor Jenkins comes from the Mike Boonholzer school of thought where you're not going to adjust your game plan. You're going to stick to what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we worried about that in the playoffs where was he going to be a coach that sticks to what he does and it be to his detriment. Um, and we saw at times that it worked, at times it didn't work. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering from what you're saying is if it's a if it's a change in identity that they have to do, will Taylor Jenkins be willing to do that? Because that kind of goes against the way not only is he coached, but the way he's been taught up in the system. Like again, same with uh, you know both Budenholzer and Jenkins are Spurs alums in a way. They've been in that system with Popovich, so they have that system in their mind where they believe their system is going to work. The only question is now that you don't have two of your main cogs in there. Can they adjust? Can you know if you go to Stephen Adams and post? Will Stephen Adams look for his shot? Like that's the thing I have with him is that he has to look for his shot mm-hmm. when he has that position because clearly, you know, if he has a mismatch, he should take it and not try to just you know be the facilitator he wants to be. Like they may need him. Hey, if you got a mismatch, big fella, take that shot. But again, like you said, I think right now the Grizzlies are going to have to adjust the teams adjusting to them, and we have not seen consistently yet how they've done that. And I want to throw this in real quick before we move on. Um, in the four games without Desmond Bain, they're shooting 31.7% on threes. That's going to be another concern as well because right yep. now, no Bain, you're going to be hunting for shots, especially from the perimeter. So a lot that the Grizzlies have to think about now, even with when Ja Morant gets back, but with Bain out, how this team is going to continue to find that production. And speaking of Ja, grade one ankle sprain. Um, we actually had a discussion before we recorded this, kind of like how should fans consider that. Um, I will, I'm going to actually go first before I let you jump in on here. Now, okay. Ja, you know, Ja, obviously the big concern you have with his game is can he stay healthy? Like that's obviously the one concern they've had since he was a rookie is can Ja Morant stay healthy? And with this latest ankle sprain, um, one of my concerns is, this is Ja's fourth year, um, is Ja starting to develop a bit of an uh, injury history, if you will, because if you know, this is not the first time he's sprained his ankle. He missed a game earlier this year due to ankle soreness. Um, two years ago, um, he had a grade two ankle sprain when he was injured against the Nets and had to miss, I believe, eight games. Um, in 20, uh, last season, I believe, he stepped on the camera person, 
missed a game due to a, an ankle, left ankle injury. Some of those, you can, you can say that's more of a fluky thing, but for me, just thinking about, you know, long-term and kind of thinking, okay, it is year four, you start, you start thinking about trends. I'm wondering if, if fans should start in the back of their minds think, you know, hey, Ja's going to be fine. Ja always recovers quickly. Ja will be Ja, but you, you start, to, you know, you start to wonder a little bit now. This is the second, at least for me, I'll say this is the third ankle injury he's had where he's had to miss, you know, some time. And it's the second, you know, sprained ankle where he's going to miss multiple games. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about it. I'm not saying the fans should worry about him like for the next five years or whatever, but I am worried about the sense that, hey, man. You, you, you kind of worry about these leg ankle injuries just trying to add up on John Morant. And of course, last year, last season, he had that knee injury that was that cost him around this time in November. And I believe he also had that obvious fluky knee injury in the playoffs. But he's had multiple injuries now. And so I, I, I'm not saying fans should be worried, but in the back of their mind, I'm wondering, hey, do you start to get a little bit concerned that, hey, you know, is, is John Morant starting to pick up a little bit too much injury history? Or even for somebody who's young, all that stuff will add up after a while. And of course, Jaron Jackson has a history of injury, so you're kind of wondering. You don't want to worry about that, but maybe in the back of your mind, you start thinking, you know, you don't need John to change his game, but you're also kind of like, man, it's starting to add up a little bit, and you can't be naive and think that it's not something that is in the back of your mind. So I'm a little bit concerned about what that means. But, DeMichael, I think you have a different point of view on how fans should look at the this latest injury. Yeah, uh, zero concern for me. Uh, <laughs> ab- absolutely zero. Ever I mean, the optimist. Yeah, the I optimist. Mean, but, but there's legitimate, you know, reason why I, I feel this way here. It's, it's for one, I you know, with ankle injuries, you know, they can be reoccurring, especially we're talking about sprains. You know, if we're talking about things that cause surgery, it's a completely different conversation. Because once you you get repaired from surgeries, there's, there's no guarantee that you're going to be the same exact players. You're going to have to overcompensate in certain areas and things like that. But ankle sprains, I mean, you sprain it, it gets well, and he's back to jumping out of the gym like normal. Uh, I think Steph Curry, right? Best example of this, you know, probably, you know, among NBA stars currently in the game. When Stephen Curry came into the league early, he had reoccurring ankle injuries yes. and sprain after sprain after sprain. And there were concerns, right? He had to get ligaments repaired. Uh, and there were legitimate concerns that ankle injuries were going to, you know, stint, stunt uh, the growth of Stephen Curry's career. Yep. But, you know, now, I mean, we've seen him deal with a couple ankle injuries, I think, in 2017, 2018. And, you know, he wears heavier ankle protection on his ankles now and things like that. He wears the high top under armor shoes and things like that because he he hasn't had many ankle problems since I would say 2013. I think in 2013 was when uh Golden State, they hired someone specifically, uh Kiki Lyles. They had yep. hired someone yep. uh, basically that they made a, a routine that focused on strengthening Curry's up, upper body. And in the process of strengthening his upper body, it was going to ease the concern on his ankles. And that was all she wrote. That was all she wrote. Since then, he's been a relatively healthy player, a, a big part of this Golden State dynasty because he's been healthy. So uh, you go back to John Morant. You know, he's, these ankle injuries, they, they're happening when, you know, he falls on a, you know, his ankle gets caught on another player's foot and, you know, his foot 
you know, his ankle gets bent or whatever, and it's like, oh, grade one ankle sprain. And we mentioned the grade two one. And last season, I remember he missed the game because, you know, when he um, he fell down or something, and the cameraman, you know, his yep. ankle with the cameraman, yep. and had, he missed the game because of that. It's it's little things like that where it's like, look, man, these things happen. Ankle injuries are the most occurring injuries in the NBA. It's almost like, you know, baseball, shoulder injuries, right. elbow injuries. Those happen because – you have a lot of stress on your shoulder and your elbow in baseball. Well, in basketball, your ankles nonstop, you're jumping, you're cutting, all these things. It's going to happen. As long as it's not something where you're requiring surgery after surgery, I think you'll be fine. So zero long-term concern from that perspective uh, for me. He, it's something that I think he'll return back from and, and pretty much look like the same exact player as long as it's not surgic procedures you know, done. Well, let me bring this up for perspective here because you mentioned Kiki Lyles, and I found this story here. So Kiki Lyles came into the picture for Steph Curry after year four, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He had here's her injury. They brought in Kiki Lyles. They thought they brought in that training regimen. Steph's pretty healthy. Um, he did have a series of ankle injuries, I believe, in 17-18. Yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the year they won their second of their back-to-back titles. He only played 51 games. So he has had some lingering small issues occur since then, but – the more I want to bring up that Grizzly fans will be curious about is the Grizzly, the Warriors made that move after Steph's fourth season and said, hey, we got to get this guy. We got to look at some things he's doing differently mm-hmm. to maybe make sure that he can, um, you know, not miss so much time because they believed in him. And so they mm-hmm. did that. So with Jabba in year four, what I'm wondering is maybe the Grizzlies, this, and we're thinking long term here, but maybe this offseason, the Grizzlies look at that and say, hey, what can we do to make sure that we protect our franchise going into his big contract next season because obviously that's going to be important is you want him to be healthy you need him to be healthy and maybe there's going to be some things he needs to do maybe he needs to look at you know the shoes with this uh the studio with nike maybe look at the shoes he's doing um but i do think yeah there are reasons to be like hey Mm -hmm. it is minor it is a concern but if you look at steph curry's history he does have had he has some minor ankle injuries come up since then um nothing major obviously outside of 17 18 and of course in 19 uh in 19 and 20, of course, he barely played that season due to injuries. Um, so, obviously, you could take it, you know, one school thought. I think, DeMichael, your point is valid. Like, people shouldn't be worried because it is kind of like fluky, ordinary injuries. But I do think that by year four, if you think the team isn't concerned about it, I would think that that would be a pie-in-the-sky naivety, if you will. Because yeah. I do think they have they have to look at this and say, hey, you know, obviously we believe in John Morant, but we do need you healthy because – you know, when you're not healthy, we are a different team. So I and to your point on on that, uh, in terms of the Grizzlies being, you know, more active and, you know, you we mentioned Kiki Lyles with, with Golden State. Actually, you know, from just what I've heard and talking to people like it, this past offseason, uh the Grizzlies kind of kind of did a thing uh where they were working with, you know, John Morant's trainers and particularly Mo Wells, you know, mm-hmm. we see him training mm-hmm. with and, you know, just having conversations about ways, you know, he can work on his landings and things like that. That was a big emphasis this past offseason for John Morant. And for the most part, uh, he's, you know, I think he's landed better, you know, on a lot of his finishes. And and there haven't been as many of those scary, like, gasping deep breath moments, you know, and things like that. So that is something that they actually are already emphasizing. You know, I don't think they're taking it to the point where let's hire a certain person who can focus on this. But it's more of like – John Morant's personal trainers, you know, like Mo Wells and and, and, and that group, they're, they're having consistent conversations with them about things like that. 
Yeah, I think so. And just to, for people to know that Steph Curry's injury in 1920 was a hand injury, not, right, a, right, not right. a leg injury. Yeah, exactly. So let's bring that up. But, yeah, I, I do think they're talking about it. And I'm glad you brought that up because it is showing that they are obviously aware of it. They're not obviously just going to assume, hey, everything's going to be fine. They have to protect their investment. And I believe Ja and his team, you know, are doing that as well, too. But I do think that, obviously, as the ankles add up, you obviously you want to you don't want to worry. But you do know that in NBA history – those things slowly add up. Even without surgery, it's like some of those things don't heal, especially given that, unlike Steph, Ja is going to put more pressure on those ankles when he jumps and plays with an explosive game. So something to keep an eye on. But obviously, Ja Morant being week to week, we're not going to obviously get too worried because he will be back very soon. So um, I want to get into this, DeMichael, um, quickly before we get into your 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 story that is out right now. Um, our columnist, Mark Giannato, wrote a story about which Grizzlies will be the most important during the Swift Without Bane. Quick answer. Give me one player who you're going to be watching to see during this trip without being at the Grizzlies who will be the most important. I'm going to throw you off here. I'm going to throw you kind of for a loop. I'm, I'm going to go with Kennedy Chandler. Really? I'm going to go with Kennedy Chandler. Interesting. Uh, Kennedy Chandler, you know, I've, I've, I was talking, you know, with his pops the other day. And, uh, you know, he was talking about how that time in the G League, you know, going down there, playing consistent minutes, how big that was for him, you know, just getting consistent playing time. Yeah. He was telling me this is the first yeah. time in a long time that Kennedy Chandler hasn't had consistent playing time, <laughs> you know. And we're looking at that second unit. The second unit hasn't been great, even with 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 uh, Tyus Jones, you know, out there. But I think, you know, you have Jake Laravia, you have David Roddy, you have Brandon Clark, you have those guys. Kennedy Chandler is the one guy who, with his explosiveness with his ability to shoot, and we've seen the defense, what he can do defensively, he has a chance to really be one of those energizer-type guys who can turn some things around, you know, with that second unit. Now he's about to be given, you know, more of that opportunity with John Morant out, and this is his chance to take advantage of those minutes. It'll be interesting to see, you know, because I think for the most part, the starting lineup, I'm not too worried about. I'm not too worried about uh, that group, at least, you know, for the – for the most part of the game. We mentioned the fourth quarter already. But for the first two, three quarters of the game, I'm not worried about, you know, what Tyus Jones, he's highest paid backup point guard in the NBA, you know, and, and you know, that group can do. I think moving those guys to the start lineup further weakens the bench. And that's why you need Kennedy Chandler to, to be more than serviceable, to be an energy, energy guy who can – Calls deflection, calls steals like we've seen him do early in his career and seen him do in college, uh, and make some shots and really push the tempo, you know, in transition to, to kind of, you know, upstart that second unit a bit. I think he's going to be one, you know, if they're successful during the stretch, it's because Kennedy Chandler is kind of really energizing that second unit. And to be clear, we're talking about the team without Bain, not John Morant. So you think even when John Morant returns, Kenny Chandler will be. No, no, that was that was with, with Jai out. Oh, because yeah. we're talking about with Bain yeah. now. We're talking about with Bain now because Bain's going to be yeah. out longer. So do you, mm-hmm. do you stick with Kennedy or do you want to pick somebody else? I mean, if 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 Kennedy – Kennedy is more of like with those two guys both out. But if you're saying with Bain out, then, yeah, I think there's, there's a different answer to that. That's, All right. that's so, probably more Dylan Brooks. So let's – okay, so let's, mm-hmm. go, so let's go to that point. So let's say for – this stretch right now, without right. without John Morant and Desmond Bain, you think Kenny Chandler's going to go most support. definitely. And then when Ja gets back, 
with Bain out. Dylan Brooks. All right. Now yeah. explain that before I jump with mine. <laughs> it's, it's, that's, that's the simple one. At the end of the day, you're going to need someone else outside of John Morant who can create his shot. And you need Dylan Brooks' defense as well. Uh, I think, you know, of course you're going to need Jaron Jackson Jr. to continue to be great. But I think at the end of the day, you need Dylan Brooks to be an efficient shot creator, to knock down some shots and, you know, give you some of the things that Dez can do on offense, but also, you know, be that secondary scorer. Uh, they're going to need him to be that guy. All right. I'm going to go with another obvious answer for this stretch. Without Ja and Bain, and then once, you know, when John gets back, Bain has to go. I mean, mm-hmm. without ja, when Ja gets back and Bain is still out, I'm going with Jaron, and here's why. Jaron is going to, you know, Jaron obviously is getting his feet wet. He's obviously working himself back into shape. Um, defensively, he looks very, he looks very, very good in his um, couple games back. But I think Jaron's going to be important because, again, Jaron is also part of your franchise. Jaron is one of your core members of this Grizz Next Gen with Bain, with Brooks, with Ja. This is going to be a time for Jaron to kind of put that on his back and say, hey, not only am I going to be the Block Panther, but I'm going to be the guy that can, you know, get you 17, 18 points. I granted, he is not the shot creator that Dylan Brooks is, but I think if you expect Dylan Brooks to kind of be that guy, you're going to need Jaron Jackson to at least be a threat as well. You're going to need him to be able to, you know, be automatic in the post. You're going to need him to get those threes that he gets. You're going to need him to be um, an offensive threat as much as a defensive threat, because clearly the Grizzlies defensively have have struggled all year with or without Bain and Ja. So they're going to need him to not just be that anchor, but they're going to need him to, you know, be the player he was last year when Ja was out, to be that guy who can get you 20, um, 18 to 20 points, who can get you that that two-way impact. And so I'm going to go with Jaron because I think it's a lot to ask him being um, coming back from being injured. But again, this is year five for Jaron Jackson. This is part of your, your your foundational cornerstones. You need him to kind of be that person. And I think he can be. I think he absolutely can be. And I'm excited because, boy, seeing him block those shots, seeing him get that dunk on uh, on Williams from the Oklahoma City Thunder. That oh, By the way, nice touch with uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. I, I have to side-eye <laughs> you for that. Uh, for those who aren't on Twitter, depending on what happens with Twitter, DeMichael had a tweet after Jaron's uh, poster dunk. Jaron Shaxson Jr. And as somebody who considers Shaq his favorite player of all time, I have to give you a little bit of a side eye. Like, really? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Yeah, so. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest pun guy in the world. But nah, it's that all. One, that one fell into my lap. You it's know? all. It it's, fell in my lap. It's all. But I, I wasn't going to side eye you on Twitter. But I had to, get, I had to mention, I'm like, really? Like, come on now. <laughs> but that was a monster dunk. So, yeah, I, I do think uh, I'm going to go with Jaron being the most important because of his two-way ability. So, um, that's going to be key. Uh, last thing uh, before we go, you got a story coming up here on uh, the Grizzlies and unwritten rules. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of insight behind the scenes to that story as we uh, wind down this podcast? Yeah. So, well, I was going to say a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't know. In 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 sports, you have unwritten rules, right? These are rules that are necessarily not mandatory to follow, but suggested by you know older players, veterans, and things like that. Like sort you of, don't score at the end of a game when you had an open layup, basically. Exactly. Like in that. NBA, you know, there's that. Then you know, you think of the NFL. Uh, you don't pass when you have a big lead. You know, late in the game. Things like that. MLB, you have a 3-0 count and you're up late in the game. You're not supposed to swing. Uh, Then there's the the get-off-my-lawn crowd, as they like to say. You're not supposed to flip your bat uh, and things like that. When You hit a home run to show up the pitcher and stuff like that. But in the NBA, there's there's kind of an interesting rule. If you're you're into sneakers, you're into shoes, you probably notice it. If you're not, you're going to really enjoy this story just from the competitive factor. And that's... uh, 
in the NBA, most players, and I say most because there are some exceptions, and I talk about that in the story as well, uh, most players do not wear the signature shoes of opponents going into those games. This is something, this is a generation plus uh, thing here. This is things that when players used to play against Kobe Bryant, when players play, you know, against Michael Jordan, Gary Payton, and, and so forth, uh, they wouldn't wear those guys' shoes because you – feel like it gives them an advantage, gives them a competitive advantage. You know, LeBron James had a had an interview with GQ in 2015, basically when he said, oh, when, when I see guys wearing my shoes, I already know I have the advantage and I'm going to destroy them, you know. So with that being said, it's kind of a thing that's been passed down through the league. You know, certain Grizzlies players, the older Grizzlies players, as you'll see in the story, are the ones who kind of learned from those Kevin Garnett, Tayshaun Prince, you know, Tony Allen type vets uh, that you don't do that. So they kind of passed it down to the younger players, and, and you'll you'll notice, like Tyus Jones, for example, he wears Kyrie's pretty much most of the season. Him and Kyrie have a really good relationship. You know, they both went to Duke at different times, but the brotherhood at Duke is something you know that Duke brags on and whatnot. So, uh, but when he played against Kyrie Irving, you'll notice he wore Kobe's. He wore Kobe Bryant's signature shoes last season. Jaron Jackson Jr. He likes to wear Kevin Durant's signature shoes when they played against the Nets. Did not wear KDs. So I talk more, you know, in depth about this unwritten rule in the NBA and the story. Just go check it out at commercialappeal.com uh, there. But, yeah, it's it's a fun thing because you have a couple players that say, look, man, those those are the shoes I wear. I can't just change shoes for a couple times a season. But you, for the most part, guys think about, you know, just the competitive swings and advantages that come with things like that. And uh, it was a fun thing to write. It was a fun thing to report on and just to hear everyone's perspective, you know, on, you know, kind of that un- written NBA rule. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, for somebody who's been who's, who's if you follow the NBA for a long time, it's something you may have heard about, you may have you may have mildly noticed, but to hear guys say it on record about that, I think it's really really fascinating. I mean, it you know, when you said that I, I was reminded about um one of our great NBA colleagues, Mark Spears, he talked about how one time he did an interview with, um, I believe he did an interview with Kobe or whatever, and he wore somebody else's shoes, and Kobe was upset about it. Like, Kobe looked at him like, why are you wearing those shoes to my interview? I think it was, he was wearing Adidas shoes, mm-hmm. and uh, Spear, and obviously Kobe was a Nike guy. So Spears said that he um, always tries to wear the shoes of somebody he does the interview for to show respect to them. So it reminded me of that, but obviously for you it's different because obviously the players, you're not going to wear somebody's shoes to try to, um, you know, that that's a mental advantage. And so like, I would totally understand why somebody would be like, Oh, you're wearing my shoes. I got you. You know, it's like, um, if someone's wearing Jordan's playing Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan mentally has already got him. I, I think it's yeah. a really fascinating story. So definitely check that out at commercialappeal.com. It's going to be a fun read for this upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. And we're going to wrap up on this. It is Thanksgiving. We all have a lot to be thankful for. Um, we're thankful for our jobs. We're thankful for what we do. We're thankful for life. Um, but with the Grizzlies, is there a lot to be thankful for right now? You don't have John Moran at the moment. You don't have Desmond Bain. But you are still a good team in the West. You're still a fun team to watch. So what we're going to do is one thing the Grizzlies should be thankful for as we get into the Thanksgiving Christmas season. DeMichael, you're first. What should the Grizzlies be most thankful for? I say I say continuity. You know, uh, I think uh, our columnist Mark Giannato did a, did a thing, you know, a story about the Grizzlies' chemistry earlier this season. But I'll take it a step, you know, further with that and talk about continuity. You know, with this Grizzlies team, you know, there aren't a lot of surprises. 
because you you know the player tendencies on the roster because it's pretty much most of the roster from last season with the addition of you know a few young players so the continuity is something with the Grizzlies that they should be thankful for because I mean just look around the league Golden State right now they have continuity at the top but their bench has been very bad and that's caused you know some some concerns you know over there and and things like that and you know you look at just the roster makeover around the NBA and things like that and teams are still learning each other they're figuring each other out whereas with the Grizzlies you have uh, a lot of players who are pretty much familiar with one another there's an easier transition there and I think the continuity you know when guys like Ja and Dez go out that can cause some frustration, right? Because you're losing games now. You know, oh, man, if these guys have, we'd easily win these games and things like that. And that can kind of lead to kind of some turmoil or or stuff like that, so to speak. But I, I don't expect that, you know, from this team just because of the continuity, just because, you know, oh, we know those guys will be back. We'll be fine. I feel like that's more of the approach here because it's interesting. When I was talking to Jaron Jackson Jr., talking to, you know, um, Tyus Jones and all these different guys about John Dez being out and everyone unprovoked brought up, you know, pretty much next man up. I think Jaron Jackson Jr. said something like, hey, you saw them win without me when John, when Santi stepped in the lineup. We saw them last last season when, you know, with Tyus in the lineup and we're going to continue to do it. You know, we're going to continue to play well. So uh, they believe in the continuity. It's not just, hey, next man up. You know, every coach says that, but they sort of believe in it. So I think the continuity is something that the Grizzlies should be thankful for because it's very easy to be concerned when you're missing two all-star caliber players uh, like they are right now. Definitely. And I'm going to riff on that a little bit. My thing is optimism. Be thankful for optimism, not just for the future with the young talent they have, but you can be optimistic right now that the Grizzlies are in a good space to be in because you look around again, you mentioned looking around the NBA, the Warriors with their two timeline structure trying to win now and play for the future hasn't worked out that well. The Clippers obviously still have some optimism, but Kawhi Leonard has battled with some injuries. Um, You can look around the league. Optimism is a very good thing to have. And I think the Grizzlies can be optimistic right now because you have a team that's relevant. You have a team that has a superstar rising in John Morant. You had Desmond Bain, who when he comes back, will be on an all-star game level pace. Um, There's optimism right now, or even with these injuries, there's hope that by Christmas, hopefully the team will be healthy for that great Christmas Day game. Which, by the way, another reason to be optimistic. You're playing on Christmas Day for the first time in franchise history. Like, There's a lot to like about this team right now that despite the injuries, you can sit here and say, well, it's not just, you know, what you say, toxic optimism. Like, hey, everything's going to be all right when it's not. You're in a good space right now. You're still... A top eight team in the West, if you look at the standings. John will be back soon. Desmond Bain, hopefully, will be back as well. And you have a lot to look forward to this season. Um, and so for me, I think that optimism is the one thing you can be thankful for because some teams already, if you look at, like, say, the Houston Rockets who are struggling, the Lakers who are struggling, there's not enough, a lot of room for optimism there. And those are two big market cities that would have a lot to look for, should have a lot to look forward to right now, but instead, neither one of those teams are doing well. So I'd say optimism because, again, the Grizzlies have seen hard times here. You have a team that's still doing well. I would say be thankful to be optimistic right now. Things will be all right. And on that note, we're going to wrap it up because Thanksgiving is approaching. We are all hungry, ready for the feast. We are ready for more basketball. But more importantly, we are ready for some rest. (laughs) So um, for DeMichael, I'm Evan. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back next week. And happy Thanksgiving. Uh
the Grizzlies podcast is a production of the Commercial Appeal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.